I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, recently the eponymously named Gutfeld, a late-night talk show on Fox News hosted by the right-wing comedian Greg Gutfeld, managed to score a ratings victory over its more liberal competition, The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Although liberals and leftists may not find their act very funny, Greg Gutfeld and similarly styled comics, like Steven Crowder, have successfully found an audience through a style of comedy premised on offending liberal sensibilities. Or, as fans of Gutfeld and Crowder would say, owning the libs. Our guest on this edition of the program, Nick Marks, an associate professor of film and media studies at Colorado State University argues Gutfeld and Crowder's success is no fluke, and that they are part of a broader right-wing comedy complex, which could exert real social influences. Nick is the co-author of the recent article in The Conversation entitled How Conservative Comic Greg Gutfeld Overtook Stephen Colbert in Ratings to Become the Most Popular Late-Night TV Host, as well as the upcoming book, that's not funny. How the right makes comedy work for them. And with those introductory comments out of the way, let's get right to the conversation with Nick Marks. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. Before we continue our conversation on this edition of Parallax Views, I want to notify California listeners of the program about one of our sponsors, the Therapy Practice of Alexander Yu. Yu is an experienced teletherapist since 2008, and he goes by the motto, Flow, Adapt, Change, as Lao Tzu would say, and he wants to accompany you on your journey of self-improvement. Now again, this applies to California listeners of the program. Alexander is a licensed psychotherapist and teletherapist, and if you'd like his services, then please contact him at Alexander U. That's Alexander uyoo.com and he can be reached by email at therapy at alexanderu.com or by phone at 
323-834-9828. That's 323-834-9828. This is only available once again to my California listeners, but if you need anything related to therapy needs, please be sure to contact our sponsor, Alexander Yu. Welcome to Parallax Views. Nick Marks, Associate Professor of Film and Media Studies at Colorado State University, author of the upcoming book, That's Not Funny, How the Right Makes Comedy Work for Them, and a recent piece from the conversation that we're going to be talking about called How Conservative Comic Greg Gutfeld overtook Stephen Colbert in ratings to become the most popular late night TV host. Uh, I believe that's also been syndicated in a few different websites like Salon. Uh, how are you doing though, Nick? I'm doing great, JG. Thanks so much for having me. So if you could, for my listeners, uh, let's assume uh, that not all my listeners know who Greg Gutfeld is. Uh, I, I have a lot of listeners that would know Stephen Colbert, hmm. but I think we live in this very um, polarized sort of age where everything's become more and more niche with media, especially entertainment media and political media. So could you tell my listeners a little bit about who Greg Gutfeld is and how he's sort of overtaken Stephen Colbert in ratings? That That seems like a shocker, but I think in your article, you say, hey, it didn't come as a surprise to us. Sure. So uh, Greg Gutfeld is a pretty uh, conventional Fox News personality. You've likely seen his face on screen if you've spent any time watching the, the network or even channel surfing past it. He's been in the New York media world for decades now. He got his start on Fox News on a sort of real late night uh, weird panel comedy talk show called Red Eye. He's bounced around among several of their other talk shows, including The Five. Um, he had his own late night show that preceded this one, Gutfeld, called The Greg Gutfeld Show. So he's slowly been kind of, um, uh, been groomed as a star on the network to ascend to the levels of a, of a Hannity or a Bill O'Reilly before him. What makes the case of Gutfeld unique is he's always had a slightly sort of satirical bent to his opinions, to his news reporting, if you want to call it that. And the conditions for comedy kind of became fertile enough over the course of the last five years or so as we explore in the piece and in the, the book coming out in the spring, uh, so that it made the uh, prospect of taking a true swing at a proper late night comedy show possible. And he was best positioned to step into that role. There have been a few others like him who've, who've tried and failed. Notably, um, in 2007, uh, Fox News had a pretty straightforward daily show ripoff called the Half Hour News Hour that tried to be topical, but also had these sort of pre-recorded, pre-planned sketches that were strangely atemporal. Um, so Fox News and a few other networks have tried this before. But Gutfeld represents really the right's first uh, attempt to successfully 
replicate the news satire that the left has grown so familiar with over the last several decades with The Daily Show and Last Week Tonight and so forth. I was going to say, would Red Eye itself, now that that shows, I, I believe, uh, out of commission, so to speak, and uh, now he has his own show, Gut Filled, would Red Eye be one of those um, experiments that failed in the past? What's different about Red Eye compared to what Greg Gutfeld is doing now? Yeah, it's a great question. So Red Eye, a uh, couple of key differences. It was on in the extreme early morning hours. It was literally a Red Eye show that I think aired from 2 a.m. Eastern to 6 a.m. Eastern, something like that. It was pure goofball experimentation, still with the sort of overt right-wing bent that you see in a lot of Fox News programming but he had comedians on. Um, you can go down a YouTube rabbit hole watching clips of um, comedians like Amy Schumer made a couple of appearances. Uh, the, the, the very famous uh, YouTuber, Steven Crowder, used to regularly swing through there. Uh, Gavin McInnes, another figure that we write about in our book coming out, would um, serve on the panel and also sometimes co-host Greg Gutfeld's later shows. So Red Eye was kind of this weird sort of um, uh, expectation-free playground for comedically inclined personalities like Gutfeld, like Crowder, like McInnes, to try their craft, see what worked, what didn't. Um, the main difference, like I said, is that it's not clear anybody was really watching it or paying that much attention to it. It has, in retrospect, now that Gutfeld has achieved some level of notoriety, gotten some uh, sort of acknowledgement, at least. There was a um, article by the New Yorker uh, critic Khalifa Senna maybe five, six years ago where uh, he flat out says, look, this guy's a comedian. He's doing the same thing that um, John Oliver and others are doing successfully. And his uh, efforts to do so stretch all the way back to the early to mid 2000s with Red Eye. So we need to start paying attention to how the right is at least um, making stabs at doing comedy. So I mentioned earlier that I, I think in the conversation piece, uh, one of the things you say is that, you know, Gutfeld overtaking Colbert in the ratings, I believe in August of 2021, uh, shouldn't have necessarily taken everyone by surprise and that maybe you weren't taken by surprise by it. Uh, why wasn't this maybe surprising to some of the people paying attention to Gutfeld? Yeah, so the the um, uh, comment about being surprised or not surprised is really a, a shot across the bow from my co-author Matt and I to our fellow liberals to not bury our head in the sands and pretend that just because we disagree with the right politically, ideologically, that they can't also you know, do basic human cultural activities like enjoy comedy and produce comedy. So there's a, a pretty robust tradition of political communication scholarship, of comedy theory that tries to define away the prospect of conservatives and right-wing ideologies doing comedy. So we address in the piece how comedy scholars like uh, Umberto Eco and others call what Gutfeld does not true comedy, or it's, it's something other than uh, the familiar, you know, laugh-inducing format that we associate with the left. Umberto so, Eco, I think, uh, called it uh, like, uh, you know, mere carnival uh, when it's not critiquing power. 
right? And you see that critique a lot among sort of 20th century philosophers that this is um, distraction. It merely sort of reinforces existing power dynamics. Um, the, the real sort of bone of contention that we take though is with our fellow media scholars and communication scholars who go out of their way to define um, right-wing comedy as something else, as rage programming or as uh, infotainment, you know, this sort of definitional dance that scholars tend to do to say, well, my argument still holds water because what you're identifying as comedy is actually this other thing that can't be what I do and what my beloved comedians do. And I think we make the case pretty plainly that if you watch, you know, 20 minutes of Gutfeld, you'll see him doing a Jay Leno-like monologue, right? The top of the show is, hey folks, have you seen what's in the news? Let's riff on that. The B block will usually be a series of interviews with um, politicians, you know, Republican politicians, comedians, uh, other people from the right-wing media universe, and comedy sketches. He's got a regular stable of sort of in-house players that he cheaply costumes, and they run around the sort of um, midtown Manhattan um, Fox complex, and they do sketches and clumsily pre-recorded bits. All there was the same, one I think he mentioned yeah. in the article, uh, a James Bond sketch, right? Yeah, yes. Yeah, um, so they're, uh, it, it's one of their regular sort of bit players who dresses up in a suit and tie, affects a, a clumsy British accent, and makes fun of what would happen if James Bond turned woke. So instead of using a gun, he would pull a banana on a criminal. Instead of ordering a martini shaken, not stirred, he orders a latte, a soy latte, right? To kind of lampoon the, the, the soy talking point from the right. Uh, they had another recent bit lampooning, um, you know, uh, liberal activist efforts to corner Kristen Cinema as she was going into a bathroom and how ridiculous that was. So they regularly, you know, do these bits, usually recorded day of their show of air to sort of keep up with current headlines in much the same way that all of the celebrated liberal satirists of the broadcast late night shows do. So this is an out and out comedy show. It is not some other thing, uh, despite our impulses to define it as such. I wanted to get into that. I think people may have a knee jerk reaction and think, uh, is Nick defending uh, right wing yeah. comedy? I don't think that's what you're doing. I think you're saying, you know, whether we like it or not, uh, the people who watch Gut Filled. Uh, understand it as comedy. It has the sort of setup as a comedy show, even if we don't find it funny. Is that what I'm getting from you? That's exactly right. So I, I do not think Gutfeld is funny. He, it, there are moments, just like in any kind of comedy, um, you do not have to find right-wing comedy funny in order to acknowledge that it is comedy, that it is capable of being funny to an audience. Our main point is to try to acknowledge first that this is comedy, it is making uh, a segment of an audience laugh. And in a broader context to understand that the right is using comedy to paper, paper over some of their uh, intra ideological differences in order to fuse, in order to come together as a political body and achieve their political goals. So our, um, you know, our argument is really a warning to the left that we cannot ignore 
this particular tool and its political efficacy. All these other factors that we've been doing for the last 20 years, celebrating the Olivers and Sambies of the world are great, but we have to at least acknowledge the right is capable of producing their own version of that. And that those folks, Gutfeld, Steven Crowder, Tim Allen, Dennis Miller, and, and all the rest serve much the same function for the right that Oliver and B serve for us. That is um, making us more politically engaged, trying to get us to coalesce into a, a group to unify behind particular causes, right? So it is uh, too dismissive to simply say that that impulse, comedy, and the unifying principles behind comedy only belong to one side of the political spectrum. I want to get into something you mentioned just now, um, that this kind of right-wing comedy and the ecosystem around it papers over some issues within the conservative movement. Uh, what did you mean by that? Like, are, we're talking specifically, I think, about divides between, say, libertarians and more culturally traditionalist elements of the movement, right? That's precisely right. So the, the right has long been much better at uh, unifying its disparate elements under this umbrella of fusionism, right? So the more traditional neoconservative elements, right? The George W. Bush conservatives can find a place alongside the more recent wave of Joe Rogan-inspired libertarians who can also find a place alongside the evangelically uh, devout Babylon B fans. And as we um, make a case for in the book, these elements, despite their uh, disagreement on specific issues, are brought together, at least in part, by the impulse to laugh and own the libs, right? That sort of, let's make fun of our political opponent and mobilize to beat them. That's at least the start that oftentimes liberals and the, and the left have a problem um, cohering around a, a shared goal in much the same way the right does for a whole variety of reasons. But we single out comedy as one thing to pay attention to uh, as a, a sort of adhesive to bring together these disparate factions. So other than gut filled, uh, could you take us through uh, some different figures and websites within this uh, sort of right wing comedy ecosystem and their relevance? Um, you mentioned Babylon B. Would you want to start with that one? Yeah, absolutely. So the Babylon B, we uh, uh, identify with a tradition of sort of religious, rational conservatism. So starting from a, a premise and arguing first principles from that premise that are often derived from, you know, Christian Western ideas about faith and, you know, gender roles. Um, so we talk in the book a bit about the Babylon Bee, the sort of uh, right-wing version of The Onion. This is a website um, founded and run by evangelical Christians. So they often take to task uh, figures even within the right, like the, the mega church preacher, Joel Osteen. But they also, of course, routinely lampoon Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and all of the, the liberal figures that you would expect them to. We also address uh, Steven Crowder, the, the sort of uh, famed YouTuber uh, who does the Change My Mind series. So there again, somebody who has a firmly held idea about the way the world works based in his religious beliefs. So he takes on issues like gender roles, gay rights, abortion, gun rights, things like that. Um, elsewhere in the book, 
uh, we address Gutfeld, Jesse Waters, the sort of mainstream version of right-wing comedy on Fox News. We take up a version of um, paleoconservatism under the, the label of paleocomedy, kind of playing off of that uh, terminology, uh, looking at figures like Tim Allen and Dennis Miller. So these um, mature sort of uh, wizened old figures among the right-wing comedy world who just wanna see America get back to its traditional values from the 1950s and 60s, right? So the, the family sitcom in the case of Last Man Standing and Tim Allen represents a, a perfect iteration of that. Um, a few more that we address uh, uh, are the, um, the role of trolling humor, right? So we kind of make the case that all of these very familiar, more mainstream elements of right-wing comedy tend to cozy up in uncomfortable ways to some pretty nefarious characters, including the um, right-wing comedian and founder of the Proud Boys, Gavin McInnes, uh, the podcaster, Michael Malice, uh, a few others who have some, you know, pretty um, uneasy associations with some less desirable aspects of online trolling and online culture, including some pretty um, nasty anti-Semitic uh, forms of, uh, you know, uh, comedy videos and podcasting that the average liberal viewer and listener might not want to check out. So it's interesting too, uh, since you mentioned the owning the libs thing, I think one thing that I always used to hear conservatives rail against when it came to uh, say the Daily Show with John Stewart was, uh, you know, oh, it, there, there's such a smugness to the John Stewart style of comedy. And I myself, even though I'm left leaning, I did sort of get that impression of smugness in something like the Daily Show at times. But it's weird because I think now, Guys like Gutfield or the right-wing version, you know, the own the libs smugness is a thing now. I think that's totally right. And I would identify that as an issue stemming from how the TV industry works. So the, the first job for whether you're a Trevor Noah on the left or a Greg Gutfeld on the right is to make programming that appeals to your specific target audience. And are you familiar with the, the term clapter? Have you heard that bandied about? No, no, tell me more. So this is a, a term of derision that comedians use to describe, you know, sometimes what Noah does and what Gutfeld does to instead of write jokes that make people laugh, it instead elicits um, clapter of recognition to say, ha ha, I recognize that you're making fun of someone I don't like. It's not necessarily funny but it owns the other side, right? It's a, you know, it's a dig at Donald Trump or it's a dig at Mitch McConnell or whatever. Um, so I think the, the impulse for this sort of let's own our opposition, whether it be through pure joke writing or through this sort of more um, superficial referentiality is a way to make sure this show is doing its job of attracting and holding the right audience so that they'll hopefully stay tuned through the ad breaks or they won't click through the YouTube ad if they're watching a, a, a clip there. Now, of course, this has implications for the broader um, world of political discourse, but I view their impulse to sort of own the opposition as first and foremost motivated by what can we do to get viewers to tune in, to generate headlines, to get people talking about our show rather than as any sort of bigger political ideological project. 
and the other thing I was going to ask in regards to all of this is I, I think the, the common refrains I hear when you talk about this subject are, and I, you bring them up in the article, um, is, oh, well, you know, don't all these psychological studies show that liberals are more likely to laugh, whereas conservatives are more likely to be outraged? And also, I, I often hear this idea that right-wing people can't do comedy because uh, us liberals are more empathetic. How would you push back against these, I, I would say, not exactly well thought out ways of thinking about all of this? Yeah, so I would say two things to that. First, that logic is, uh, it, it's, a, it's a tautology, right? Uh, right-wing people can't make comedy because they're right-wing, which means they can't do comedy, right? It, it, it's this circular thing where you hand a survey out to 100 people, ask them to self-identify their political affiliations, and it comes back with the results you're, you're hoping for and expecting, right? So you kind of get this self-fulfilling prophecy that isolates itself from the ever-changing uh, world of media, of what's actually happening on screen and how the media industry operates. So the second thing I would say is that may be true. Indeed, I, I think it is. I think there's probably a ton of truth to the fact that liberals like to laugh more and conservatives aren't as inclined to engage politically through comedy. However, that's a, a snapshot in time. That doesn't mean it can't change, right? So a lot of that way of thinking about comedy and politics is based on the previous 20 years, specifically on a pre-Trump um, way of thinking about comedy and politics. And the last five years or so, so uh, Trump kind of um, making the field fertile for you know, this kind of ironic trolling voice to enter into the right, combined with changes in media industries that have afforded more and different types of comedians platforms on YouTube, on social media, on Spotify and elsewhere have made it inevitable that someone from the right would step into this market void and try. Even though they tried in the past, it's inevitable somebody would find the right formula and succeed too, right? So you might make the case that Joe Rogan was among the, the first of these right-wing voices to, to truly embody uh, right-wing comedy, even though he's not as avowedly conservative as someone like a Gutfeld or a Steven Crowder. He shares a ton of the same sort of libertarian impulses supporting free markets and individual rights that his fellow conservative brethren do. So just because the, um, you know, the, the snapshots that someone takes at a particular point in time of uh, you know, a relationship between political ideology and comedy doesn't mean that it's eternal, right? That research has to keep up with ever-changing practices in media industries. Like, how, how do you account for Gutfeld's success? How do you account for Rogan and Crowder's success? If indeed this um, truth about uh, who does and does not make comedy is true and everlasting. I wanted to ask, there was a specific line in the article, and I don't know if you can speak that much to it, but I wanted to ask anyways, you write that comedy's perceived political bias at the time of, uh, you know, say the, the, the height of the Daily Show's popularity uh, when George W. Bush was in office was more likely driven by specific economic circumstances, which have now radically changed. What do you see as being those economic circumstances from that time? And what do you see the circumstances being today 
uh, that have led to maybe changes and more uh, audience fragmentation? Yeah, so 20 years ago, this um, political comedy format mostly existed in conventional film and television spaces. So it was Politically Incorrect with Bill Maher. It was The Daily Show with um, Jon Stewart. And the uh, size of the audience those shows could capture was much bigger. It, it was liberals writ large, right? And there were a lot of different types of liberals it could capture under that umbrella. Over the past 20 years, however, the number of options for entertainment have drastically cut into the, the size of audience that one single TV show can expect to capture. So that the um, type of viewer that The Daily Show can now expect to um, court is much narrower, right? It may have been liberals writ large 20 years ago. Now it's likely liberals between a certain age, a certain income bracket, perhaps it's even gendered in its divide. I'm, I'm not sure, I haven't kept up with the specific demographics of it. But that same audience fracturing has happened in the world of right-wing media as well. 20 years ago, Fox News might've been the only television resource for conservatives. Well, now we've got half a dozen um, conservative news channels in the form of OAN and Newsmax and elsewhere. Podcasting is a very robust conservative media industry. YouTube, right? All of these different resources have the potential to capture increasingly smaller and smaller audience slices, which makes their attempts to do comedy that much more uh, low risk and high reward, right? So if one of them hits, it'll take off and get spread throughout the conservative media sphere. Uh, so that change in sort of big tent programming from about 20, 25 years ago to today is what's mainly caused those economic changes. So in other words, it seems as if just generally speaking, the world of entertainment and media is increasingly catering towards hey, there's this niche and we can get this niche of, of people that are into this uh, type of comedy or this type of movie. Uh, we'll have a streaming network for these people. And that sort of uh, affects the entire media sphere in a way, this sort of um, targeting of niche demographics. That's exactly right. If you zoom out from the political comedy example, there are very few forms of mass culture entertainment left today. Uh, they mainly exist in the movie theater in the form of blockbuster movies from Marvel and, and the Fast and Furious franchise, and maybe to a lesser extent in the once every couple of months Netflix zeitgeisty hit like Stranger Things or Squid Game or, or whatever the, the current show of the moment is. Today's media environment is dominated by, as you mentioned, niche media. So content that is specifically targeted, not just at men, but at young men who have a certain income level, who have a certain taste preference, who may be raced, gendered along specific lines. So this is what's made uh, something as niche seeming as right-wing comedy possible. And indeed, that's why we get so many different sort of flavors of it as we explore in the book. With Gutfield, for instance, who would his audience be? And are there other people within this right-wing comedy world that may target uh, different audiences. Yeah, Fox News is a pretty fascinating example because, uh, as you may know, over the course of the Trump administration, you know, Fox News kind of fell in and out of favor with President Trump. I, I believe it's kind of on the outs 
with him right now. Uh, even though early on he was extremely close to Sean Hannity and Roger Ailes before his passing and a, a few other figures there. Fox News still is the most popular and powerful right-wing voice. Um, but as competitors have entered the scene in the form of folks uh, on OAN and Newsmax and elsewhere, what you've seen from Fox, I think, is an effort to maintain their hold on that number one position by diversifying ever so slightly what their formula is for success. And comedy, I would argue, is key to that. No longer can they just be the sort of news, sort of uh, infotainment, uh, opinion, partisan opinion network, but they've got to try some form of entertainment programming too. And I think Gutfeld is a step in that direction. So I think comedy is part of their attempt to hold on to a broader, at least comparatively broader mainstream audience. Um, the other forms of right-wing comedy we discussed in the book, like paleo comedy, uh, tends to have an older viewership, right? So broadcast television in the form of sitcoms like Last Man Standing with uh, Tim Allen are watched by uh, boomers, right? So people who still watch live uh, evening broadcast television, younger generations likely aren't tuning in for that. They're the ones who are more online, who are listening to podcasts from the likes of uh, Joe Rogan and the Legion of Skanks, another uh, set of podcasters we talk about in the book. Um, so the further away you go from those mainstream television channels, I think the younger the audience tends to skew for right-wing comedy. So as we sort of go deeper into uh, what we describe as the right-wing comedy complex, this sort of structure of different uh, right-wing comedy voices, the folks who reside in the basement of that structure, the trolls like Gavin McInnes, like Michael Malice and a few others, these folks live in the deep recesses of the media universe. You cannot find their content on platforms like Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You cannot find their web shows on platforms like YouTube because their views are, uh, well, racist, anti-Semitic, fascist in, in many cases. Uh, but we make the case throughout that these folks are all connected. They appear on one another's shows. As I mentioned, Gavin McInnes used to regularly appear on Greg Gutfeld's show. They promote one another. They talk to one another on social media, right? They get in back and forths on Twitter with one another and with liberal personalities. So just because they hold different um, audience segments of the right-wing media universe and they make different uh, flavors of right-wing comedy, doesn't mean they can't be ideologically aligned behind a particular figure like Trump or, or someone else. One more thing before uh, we wrap up, I guess when thinking about maybe right-wing curious consumers of comedy, we mentioned that there's maybe a whole section of right-wing comedians or what you would define as right-wing comedians that get a sort of younger demographic I guess what I'm interested in, would this be limited to like the young white male demographic? Are there, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking now of the uh, controversy over the uh, recent Dave Chappelle special. I mean, are, are there attempts within the right-wing mm -hmm. media complex uh, or right-wing comedy complex to go just beyond, you know, age demographics into race and things like that, even gender? Well, that's a, a great question because you're right in that many of the, uh, Right-wing comedians we talk about in the book are 
uh, straight white men. Um, but I think that is a thing to look out for in the future is how this impulse, this reactionary impulse, uh, I'm loath to use the phrase, but since it pops up in the case of Dave Chappelle, uh, cancel culture, right? Uh, how is that gonna come for folks of different um, identities, um, you know, sexualities? Is it gonna start to pop up in uh, the LGBTQ community? Will it incorporate more uh, black comedians in the, the case of Chappelle? For the most part, it's mostly been um, straight white men who support Donald Trump. I, I mean, I think there's no, um, uh, no, no way to uh, ignore that fact. But I think in the next five to 10 years, we'll see a pretty interesting uh, set of attempts to maybe branch out beyond that voter base and that sort of identity and political affiliation. I, I do think you're gonna see more folks like Chappelle. Uh, well, indeed, I, I, Chappelle did several shows in uh, Austin over the, the winter with Joe Rogan. You know, Joe Rogan is kind of setting up his own sort of right-wing comedy universe in uh, Austin right now with uh, a couple of other uh, right-leaning podcasters. So it, it remains to be seen if, if this can uh, gain and hold momentum. My guess is yes, some version of that will happen, but it will continue to be led by very powerful figures who, who look like you would expect them to look, who look like Donald Trump. In closing, when I shared your article about uh, Gutfeld and his sort of overtaking uh, Colbert in the ratings, someone said to me, oh, well, that it's not a big deal. I mean, uh, you know, late night comedy isn't that great these days. So and people are watching TV less. So that that's why Gutfeld was able to do that. It's just a fluke. What do you say to people that have that reaction when they hear about the rise of right wing comedy and they try to maybe say, oh, what's the big deal? <laughs> yeah, I would say, why do these flukes keep happening? <laughs> right. Why is it that Joe Rogan is among the most popular podcasters? in the universe? Why is it that Tim Allen is, is still touring uh, sold out, you know, stadiums for his uh, stand-up comedy shows and, and, and others like him? At a certain point, the evidence uh, in support of there being a, a true right-wing comedy world overcomes uh, liberals, and, and I'll include myself here, our own impulse to say like, eh, that's not funny, right? That's why we named the book that. That, that can't be comedy. We can't take them seriously. Those guys suck. Even if you don't like it, you have to acknowledge its existence and its potential political efficacy. This is the true danger of the right-wing comedy world is that it can be mobilized to recruit younger generations of right-leaning thinkers. It can be used to, to paper over, to cover up some of the intra-ideological tensions that I mentioned before in order to unify those disparate elements of the right and mobilize them behind a candidate. So continuing to bury our head in the sand and ignore it is dangerous. It could lead to a potential 2024 loss. It could lead to any number of undesirable political outcomes. And indeed, I would make the case that we are living in the midst of <laughs> undesirable political outcomes, even though um, you know, the center left holds power in all three branches of government. So where does that get us if we continue to ignore the right and their potential to return? And also, I, I guess in that regard, you know, you end the article by saying 
the value or danger of right-wing comedy is a matter of political opinion. Its reality, however, is no joke. Now, let's say it is, uh, it could, let's say it could be a danger in the future. I, I realize your work is descriptive, I, I would assume, and not necessarily yeah. prescriptive, but what can be done maybe to uh, combat the sort of rise of right-wing comedy or is any, is there anything left comedy do, can do uh, differently to sort of fight back? So two things. Uh, the first is what I've been mentioning, acknowledge that what these folks are doing is comedy. So let, let's name it the correct thing so that we can uh, deal with it correctly. And the second thing, weirdly enough, is that I think we on the left can learn a lesson from the right's fusionistic elements. We often spend so much time on the left fighting uh, battles among ourselves that uh, make our political causes dead in the water. So look at what's happening in the uh, couple of bills trying to get through um, the House and Senate at the moment right now. Those battles are described as you know centrist battling with the more progressive wings of the Democratic Party. That's not to say those um, battles don't happen on the right as well, but they seem to be better at sort of overcoming their ideological differences in order to achieve political outcomes. I think we on the left could learn something from how um, the right mobilizes behind political outcomes to, to get tax breaks for the rich, for instance, or to install fifth and sixth members of uh, the extreme right wing on the Supreme Court. I, I misspoke before when I said Dems had control of all three branches. I, I, I meant uh, both houses and the presidency. Um, so I think overcoming some of the more proximate, um, uh, 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 let's say, political uh, fights in order to achieve bigger political goals is a lesson that I think we could learn from acknowledging the right as being capable of comedy and observing their political tactics. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. I'd like to have you back on the show uh, when the book comes out, I believe in uh, spring of 2022. And uh, any final comments uh, about Greg Gutfield, the article, uh, the upcoming book, or just anything on your mind with regards to this topic and how my listeners can keep up with your work? No, I, I thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, I'd be happy to share our piece in the conversation and, and look out for the book, That's Not Funny, How the Right Makes Comedy Work for Them, coming out in the spring of 22. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Nick Marks. And of course, if you found our conversation intriguing, be sure to keep an eye out for his upcoming book, That's Not Funny, How the Right Makes Comedy Work for Them. As always, if you can, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. $1, $5, $10, and $15 tiers are all available. Any amount will help. $5 tier gets exclusive bonus content next week. That bonus content should include the second part of our special on the covert history of George H.W. Bush and the Bush family dynasty. That should be available again to $5 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page next week. So if you'd like to hear that, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. That's patreon.com 
slash parallax views and of course 10 and 15 dollar tier supporters get a producer's credit shout out which means producer's credit shout outs to mark arlen spartacus gunner ed gratz james mickey brian the war nerd the 42 group nick emilia chase chris orc black tuna Catherine, nathan david holland martin Stu, and jeffrey if you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, 10 or $15 tiers at the Patreon page, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. I need all the help I can get to keep this show going, and I appreciate all the support I've been getting in recent months. You guys are the best. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax The way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.